I'm Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. Welcome back to Dinner Table Politics. Welcome back. And Abby, welcome back to the United States of America. Thanks, you too. Uh, People don't realize that we were out of town for the last 13 days. We spent, uh, what, how many days in London and how many days in Paris? Um, I don't know. So my sister lives over in London, your aunt. My aunt. We uh, were able to stay with her as we saw pretty much everything there was possible to see in the United Kingdom over the course of about 10 days. Not the United Kingdom, just in London. Yeah, just in London. But it felt like the entire United Kingdom. We spent a whole lot of time at London sites. And I'm curious because two years ago you spent an entire summer in London. I did. Uh, Did you spend any more time focused on the kinds of political stuff that we weren't able to see because Parliament was shut down? We weren't able to take a tour of Parliament. Mm -hmm. But were any of your studies focused on the political life of London? Yeah. So I got I got it was a study abroad. So I got credit for it. And part of the credit was English history. Right. And so a lot of it, like we built up from like the ancient eras, you know, like Roman civilization up until the present. But yeah, we focused a lot. Like we, we walked through the houses of parliament. Oh, I can't talk parliament actually, which I thought was boring personally. Why was it boring? It was, it was just an empty building. It was the kind of same idea with like touring the white house. It's boring. Like it's cool stuff happens in there, but you don't see any of the cool stuff. You just see the rooms that it takes place in. Yeah, you, well, and also, particularly in the White House, you don't get to walk through the rooms where the cool stuff actually happens. You get right. to walk through the rooms that are open to the public, and that's not always the same thing. But the rooms that we walked through primarily were rooms that haven't been used by the royal family for decades, if not centuries. In where? Well, like the Tower of London or at Hampton Court. Oh, yeah, those, yeah, they haven't been used in... They haven't been used forever. What was interesting to me, though, as as we went through this, it gave us a perspective, or gave me a perspective anyway, of the differences between American government and British government. And one of the things growing up that I was always confused about was the fact that the UK focuses so much on the monarch, and yet the monarch doesn't really have any power. The monarch doesn't isn't able to do anything, and it always struck me as kind of a ridiculous institution. I love the queen. You love the queen, yes. and you, well, do you love the you love the whole royal family? I, I'm I am a, I'm obsessed with the royal family. Yes, you don't not just love them; you are in love with them. Not. No, I'm not in love with Lizzie. I well, love Lizzie. Well, you're in love with Prince Harry. You're mm, jealous of Meghan not Markle. Not anymore. He's kind of out of my age range, I would say. Well, I suppose. I, I gained a new appreciation for the monarchy when I started watching The Crown on Netflix. Have you, yeah. have you seen The Crown? Have you seen the whole thing? A couple thing? episodes. I kind of burned out on it. I was like, uh, I can find more interesting stuff on YouTube. I don't have to so watch I this. I've out. lived it, right? Is that, was, was that your attitude? No, I just, it it was, it was good. It was just really slow moving. I think I just, I didn't get into it. Well, one of the main differences between British government and American government is the fact that the queen is the head of state 
and the prime minister is the head of the government. Uh And both of those roles are combined in the United States in the presidency. So the president is both the head of state and the head of government, meaning that whenever there is some kind of big ceremonial occasion to take place, the president has to do that as well as actually sign bills and negotiate legislation with Congress and all of that sort of thing. Whereas the queen is the one who shows up at all of the shopping malls and cuts the ribbons. It it wasn't always like that, though. Like, even Elizabeth's dad, it seems like, had a lot of um, clout, you could say, in, the, in like, the actual governing part and not just being a figurehead. Well, like, it just seems like Elizabeth has been the one to kind of transition the role into being more just... Uh, a national figure for people to like, and then... Well, we'll probably end up talking about a lot of movies here, but have you seen The King's Speech? Yes. About Elizabeth's dad? Yes. That was the first R-rated movie I think I watched with my parents. (laughs) Well, that's one of the silliest R-rated movies. Yeah, it's just a couple swear words. Well, and, and they also, unlike any other time you see swear words in a movie... They warn you before it's going to happen. He says, do you know the F word? And so you know exactly when it's going to come. And he says it in order to be able to overcome his stuttering. I didn't have any problem with you guys watching that, even at a young age. But one of the things he laments in that movie is that he doesn't have any power there either. He's not able to actually impact the government. And if you watch The Crown, which also actually starts with him at the beginning of it, before Queen Elizabeth takes over. One of the things that he is constitutionally prevented from doing is actually expressing a political opinion. Hmm. So uh, in preparation for this podcast, and after coming home from London, I thought, okay, I want to figure out when that actually happened and how that goes back in history. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people trace the history of the monarchy (laughs) to um, the Magna Carta in 1215, which was signed by King John, and he hated it. He was bullied into it by the barons who wanted to have rights. This is King John of Robin Hood fame as well. Oh, is it? I didn't know that. Yeah, cowardly King John, the the lion. Is that that where the cowardly lion comes from in The Wizard of Oz? No, no, like in, in the Robin Hood movie, you know, he's like a, the Disney one, he's a lion. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I had never thought of that. It's a great, great movie. It is a great movie, and it's historically accurate, isn't it? Yeah. Robin Hood was actually a fox. Yes. Everyone was actually animals back then. That actually is something that a lot of people don't know, is that most of England (laughs) were farm animals. Like, people were farm animals until, like, the 1500s. Yeah, it took a while to make that transition. Yeah. Yeah, so this, this is good. Well, no, so King John signed it and immediately disavowed it. Right. And the Pope nullified it. But what happens is he died the next year, and his son, who was a kid, took over, and in order to be able to get some kind of stability, they resurrected the Magna Carta. And it's considered the first statement of any kind of political rights to anybody outside of the monarchy. But it's far from the kind of constitutional protections that we see today. I found, looking through it, there was a section that was talking about the payment of debts 
Mm-hmm. And it talked about debts owing to other than Jews shall be dealt with likewise. Nice. So, you know, some nice racism baked into the document. Pretty much all of history is just anti-Semitism in different forms, I would say. I, that's, that's far more true than it ought to be. So the Magna Carta made overtures to giving rights to the people. But the reality was that the king essentially ruled as an absolute monarch. We went through Hampton Court which yeah. is where Henry VIII lived. Probably my favorite English monarch. Henry VIII? Yeah. Why is he, he your favorite? He was wild. I was. I used to be, I'm not used to, I still am just obsessed with the Tudors right. and everything about the Tudors. Like even when I was like 11 or 12, I would read historical fiction about the Tudors. I just love them. Um, Henry VIII, he just was such a character. Well, of course, his, his wives really got the short end of the stick, but... Well, they were shortened. They well, and actually, we, I learned this in my study abroad. We we got tested on stuff like this, you know, and so we had to have a mnemonic for how all of his wives ended up. And it goes: so he had six wives, and it goes: divor- divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Well, that rhymes. I know, so it works out really well. Thanks, Henry the Eighth. You so, helped me get an A on my final. Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's very good stuff. The first one, they say divorced Catherine of Aragon, but he pretty much killed her. He That was the one he was trying to do. That's when he like created the new church for so he could marry Anne Boleyn. And he basically just exiled her into like a, a really musty swamp place, and she got sick and died. Well, so, and that's a divorce? Technically, yeah. Because that's, that's the one that he created the new church so that, just so he could divorce. That's, well, that's um, Bloody Mary's mom. Oh, okay. Except for if he exiled her, why did he have to create a new church? Because the Pope wouldn't let her, him divorce her, because you couldn't get divorces in the Catholic Church. Well, that's true. Well, well, we'll get into that when we get back, right after our break. So welcome back. How was your break? It was good. Good times. It was, it was nice, relaxing. Last time we did that, we, you said, oh, I've been doing some traveling. And little did they know that we had actually literally been, we had actually been doing some traveling. So the creation of the Church of England is really one of the hallmarks of history, uh, not just politically, but in terms of the entire shaping of world history. I think there and it very, was all just because a dude was like, eh, "I'm sick of my wife." Right? Uh, have you seen the movie? Since we're talking about movies, have you seen the movie "A Man for All Seasons"? No. It is a wonderful movie. That would bore you to tears. Every time I try to show old you're movies really, to my you're children. You're really selling it. <laughs> really selling it. Well, it's the story of Sir Thomas More, who was... A oh, ki- yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Yeah. He got killed. He got killed because he refused to sanction the creation of the Church of England. He, right. was, a, he was a dedicated Catholic. But the amazing thing was he didn't speak out against, against Henry VIII or the Church. He just resigned and was silent. And was not allowed to do anything. And ho- that's what I did when Zane left One Direction. Yeah, I wasn't. I didn't like speak out that much. I kind of just retreated into a depression and was silent about it all. As as kind of kind of the same idea, I think. Kind of the same idea. Well, he finally is executed when Richard Rich, who is the Attorney General for Wales, perjures himself and says that Thomas More had confessed to him, and. 
at one point in the play, or it was a play before it was a movie, and at one point in the movie, Sir Thomas More says, what's that badge you're wearing? And it says, well, it shows that I am the Attorney General of Wales. And he says, oh, Richard, the Bible says that it profiteth a man nothing to uh, gain the world if he loses his whole soul. But for Wales... Is that a joke? No. Is it supposed to be funny? No, no, it's absolutely not funny that he gives his soul not just for the whole world, but just for whales. Oh. So that's the point of it. But very I, I highly recommended uh, if, if you're in the mood to watch. Uh, if you're in the mood to be bored. Mood to be bored. If, you're, if you can't fall asleep at night then this is the movie to watch. Right. So the history of the monarchy, it's a lot of betrayals. It's a lot of people going back and forth. But one of the things that I was fascinated by and that I learned more about on this trip was the Commonwealth of England that only lasted 11 years. Oh, Oliver Cromwell? Oliver Cromwell. What a guy. What a guy. Monty Python says about Oliver Cromwell, there's a song called Oliver Cromwell that John Cleese sings. In the very beginning, he says, the most interesting thing about Charles I is that he was five foot six inches at the start of his reign and only four foot eight inches at the end of it. Mm, because he got his head chopped off. Because he got his head chopped off. and Oliver- Or he had a really horrible genetic condition that caused him to shrink over the course of his lifetime. Well, see, I'm not sure that's an actual thing, but Oliver Cromwell, we we went through Hampton Court, which is where Henry VIII lived, and it's also where Oliver Cromwell lived. And Oliver Cromwell cut off the head of the king and then essentially lived as a king, and Oliver Cromwell's successor was to be his son. So what's the difference? You call it, he called himself the Lord Protector of England, but what's the difference between that and being a king? Well, that's also something that I noticed. We also went to Paris. And did a lot of historical crap there, you know. Right, historical um, crap. Yeah. That was kind of the agenda for the entire yeah. trip. And that was the whole, that's all that France did as well, is like their whole revolution. It's like, oh, we're sick of the king. We're going to, we killed Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette. And then we got Napoleon, who declared himself emperor. Right. It was, which was basically the same except worse. Right. And then it was, and for years and years, it was just like, um, then they got kings again. Like France couldn't really figure their their stuff out. So it's a similar kind of idea. Is like, well, we don't like a king, but so we're going to get something else that's exactly the same except a different name. Yeah, you, know, you saw that over and over again. It was interesting that one of the reasons why Cromwell came to power, he was a Puritan, and he was concerned that Charles the First had Catholic leanings. So the Catholic Church had not yet fully been excised from English life. Mm-hmm. Oliver Cromwell lived a natural life and died of natural causes. But on the 30th of January, 1661, it was the 12th anniversary of Charles I's execution, Oliver Cromwell's body was exhumed from Westminster Abbey. Oh. They dug him up. He was subjected to a posthumous execution. He was hanged in chains. He was already dead. It's kind of the same idea like when LeBron left Cleveland the first time and everybody burned his jersey. It's that's like, exactly he already, what it's like. He already got the royalties from that, you guys. Like, it's just, it's just... Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. 
This is he was the LeBron James of his day, mm, except he was no, hanged in chains. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that LeBron is the king. Well, that's right. He is the king, and Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protector. You don't know what you're talking about. That's very true. So he was he was hanged in chains at Tyburn, and then then thrown into a pit. His severed head was displayed on a pole outside Westminster well, Hall. That's just excessive. Yeah, his head was displayed on I a think, pole for twenty five years. I think what happened was some really freaky weird guy was bored that night and was like, "Hey guys, you know what we we should do that would be a really good idea." Is dig up Oliver Cromwell? Yeah, he he just was. Well, there was a lot. He needed of, to find a better hobby. A lot of people were concerned that. Uh, that might not actually have been Cromwell. There are many people who said, well, geez, this was a fake. So this rotting head, which was eventually just the like, skull. Why does, this, why does this body have four legs? Is this a horse? <laughs> We've gone this far, guys. Let's just commit to it. Let's just commit. So clearly Oliver Cromwell acted like a king. And so the question you asked very early on here was, well, at what point did the king lose his power. Or did you ask that question or you just you just said that that was Elizabeth that was the I, first I, I kind of said that it was Elizabeth, but I guess I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, not necessarily. So we're going to get into that. So when the the queen or the king essentially became the figurehead and the head of state instead of the head of government, we will discuss that when we return. Hello and welcome back. So, 1688, what were you doing in 1688? I was but a twinkle in the sky. As was I. I am an old man, but 1688 is before me. But 1688 is when the UK established what they called the Glorious Revolution. Mm-hmm. This is William of Orange. No, no, no. This yeah, is William and Mary. William, yeah, yeah. So, you got college credit for this. You mm-hmm. need to tell me exactly what happened. Um, well, they came down from William and Mary, um, came down from, what was it? The Netherlands? I I don't know. Something like that. (laughs) One of those, one of those Scandinavian countries and they came to England and they basically had a revolution that was bloodless. That's why it was glorious. Like hardly anybody died and they just established themselves. Hardly anybody I'm sure there was somebody trampled somewhere by a horse and commotion. You know, nothing's really bloodless. And that was the glorious revolution. And then. And then that was it. That was that was it. Well, what's remarkable is that in the glorious revolution, essentially, the king and the queen, uh, because she, I think, was the rightful heir. But she she uh, gave the duties to her husband because sexism and stuff. Yeah. Magna Carta, the anti-Semitism, sexism endured. I mean, wasn't it just recently that isn't Princess Charlotte the first one mm-hmm. to not have to abdicate her yeah. her role in the lineage to her brother, mm-hmm. to her younger brother? When did that happen? That's like that's like within Char- the last 10 well, years. Well, Charlotte, yeah, Charlotte's only, what, three? So that, that happened within the last three, three years. I love Charlotte. Uh, I love the royals. Uh, well, so the, the changes in royalty in the 21st century have been remarkable. But we'll get into that because we're, we're digging through this whole thing here. Mm-hmm. But uh, in 1688, essentially, they established what they call parliamentary supremacy, meaning that the parliament has the power to determine the absolute law of England. See, mm-hmm. people don't realize the United States Constitution is the oldest written constitution in the world. France has based its constitution on the United States con- uh, Constitution. Yeah. Uh, Theirs is called the 
something for the rights and whatever human citizens. That's exactly what it's called. Yeah. Something for the rights and whatever of human citizens. Yeah, but they really could not. That was another thing. This isn't this is this is kind of off topic. That the trip made me really appreciate how dope the United States is, you know? <laughs> How among, dope. Yeah, are. among other things, we have lots of public restrooms and drinking fountains. And yeah, what's the deal with that? But but the um, how come you can't find water anywhere in London or France? I mean, do these people not need all, liquid I to live? I think they're reptiles. Honestly, I don't know. But, I don't understand um, how that works. But uh, like the time that France had its revolution, you know, most of Europe was having different kinds of revolutions, and um, around the same time, America was having its revolution. But we really got it right, basically, on the first try. You know? Right. Like, we, we obviously, we had a civil war later, which was a kind of a, not, not the best. But, not but like, the best. But compared to France, you know, they had their, they based their constitution off of ours pretty heavily. And then they just could not get a hold, they, they just could not get, they could not get it together, you know. They had their reign of terror and then a zillion different tries and but we we were pretty good at it we were and it's amazing we figured it out we figured it out and we are the oldest living written constitution that's still in use but but i guess england's interesting too because they didn't have a revolution at the same time that most of europe was well and england is interesting to me because they don't have a constitution either there isn't a written English constitution. They talk about the constitution, but the constitution is really just a series of precedents over thousands of years. I think they do. I years. think it's called Bridget Jones' Diary. That's the constitution yeah. of the UK. Bridget yeah. Jones' Diary. Yeah. Can you verify that? Can, can uh, you back that up? I just up? checked Wikipedia and I am correct. All right. Well, there you have it. But besides Bridget Jones' Diary, the UK has had to operate on a series of precedents that go back essentially to the Glorious Revolution. And they talk about now, with regard to the Queen's powers, she has what they call de facto powers and de jure powers. In other words, there are things that she can do, and there are things that she does do. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily overlap. If the Queen were to decided to toss out Parliament... Uh, technically speaking, constitutionally, there's some precedent to suggest she, she probably could, and yet the glorious revolution has standed for so, uh, has stood for so long. Standed isn't a word. Did you know that? Oh, it, I knew. You knew. It stood for so long that she'd get in serious trouble if she tried to do that. But the queen can request that the prime minister resign, call for the resignation of the prime minister, and appoint a new prime minister. And the last time that happened, when do you think that was? 1974. What in what context? Uh, well, I think the prime minister was in failing health, oh. and so the queen had to pick a new one. But you watch the crown, and the queen at one point is 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 threatening to dismiss Winston Churchill because of his handling of the disaster in the fog, which they go into, and the fog miraculously clears as he walks in at the moment when he's going to be dismissed, and she changes her mind at the last minute. I'm sure that's historically mm-hmm. accurate. Yeah. I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So ever since then. Uh, the queen, or the king, essentially, has been the head of state, but not the head of government. That and, seems, honestly, like, I know that our whole thing, America's whole thing, was like, oh, we we going to get away from the monarchy. Rah, rah, rah. We want to be as different as possible. But that seems like a good setup. Like, the president could get a lot more done, I think, if he wasn't going to fancy dinners. all. Well, obviously not our president. He would be as yeah, Well, all he as wants effective. to do is go to fancy yeah, dinners. Yeah, right. But that seems like, like just in general, it would save a... Um, 
a president a lot of time with having not to deal with. No, I, I think that's a good stuff point. Like that. And and I, I I think there is some value in that. I was talking to your mother about this, and she said, "Well, that's essentially the role the vice president plays." Um, during the eighties, when the heads of the Soviet Union kept dying, Reagan was criticized for not having a summit with them, and he says, "Well, I've sent George Bush to all of their funerals. What else do you want me to do?" Uh, and so the vice president fills some of that role, but the reality is when there is a big moment, uh, everybody wants to hear from the president. Yeah, nobody, nobody even knows nobody, who the vice president nobody is. Nobody wants Mike Pence. At nobody a wants funeral. Mike Pence at a funeral. Although I think he's gone to several funerals, so you never know. But the, the, there is some value in that, and and there, that's something that you don't really fully appreciate when you grow up as a hardcore Republican, thinking, ah, you know. The monarchy, it's just for idiots. But uh, Churchill's respect for the monarchy was always surprising to me. And Churchill was front and center in our trip here, too. We went through Mm -hmm. the war rooms and learned a great deal about Winston Churchill. And what was amazing to me and really very comforting to me was the fact that Winston Churchill, when he became the prime minister and essentially took the reins of World War II, he was 65 years old. Uh, I'm about to turn maybe, 50. Maybe one day you too can be 65 in the midst of a world war. Yes, that's, that's, the, that's the message that's I the do dream. from that. Maybe I can at some point be uh, the center of the universe the way Winston Churchill was. He had was. been a big deal in other war, like as a, um, I don't know. He had done stuff in like India and Pakistan too. Uh, right, before. well. That he was, he's been criticized for. Right. Several times people had essentially written his obituary, his political obituary, mm-hmm. and said Winston Churchill is done. He was extraordinarily controversial when he assumed uh, the prime ministership. Is that what you call it? Prime ministerism? The, the yeah, ism. Prime ministerism. So when Winston Churchill essentially became prime minister, uh, he had been written off so many times that nobody thought that he was going to have the kind of influence that he did. But you walk through those rooms. The museum in London is in the actual rooms where Winston Churchill managed World War II from -hmm. the bunker in in, in the basement. And uh, it's cramped. It's hot. And it's, it was very nice to actually go into the museum that they've built down there because there was actually air conditioning, which was delightful. Yeah, that's another thing that England hasn't really figured out. Well, they, they don't they don't need to usually, but when we, we were there, it was hot for a couple of days. It, it was hot for the first week, and then it started to rain, and then it cooled down. It's it was been just nice. a really hot summer there, apparently. Well, it, it was the driest Global I've ever warming. seen. Global warming, well, that's a whole other podcast. We have to focus on that next. Why was England so hot? Global warming. Mm -hmm. I think that's the topic for our next week, don't you think? Yeah. We also had an opportunity to go. um, We spent a lot of time in London. We spent time in France, but we also went to Normandy. Great place. Which is a great place. Gorgeous place. There are a couple of movies. We're recommending a bunch of movies, uh, a couple of movies that are out now or just recently out. Dunkirk and Darkest Hour which essentially cover the same events. Yeah, but Dunkirk had Harry Styles in it. So so that one wins. Yeah. And Darkest Hour had Gary Oldman in a fat suit. I mean, come on. That's, that's almost as good, isn't it? I can't even joke about that. Harry Styles <laughs> is too important to me. Uh, but both of them tell the story of Churchill's evacuation of Dunkirk and one from the perspective of the soldiers. You never see Churchill in the movie Dunkirk. You just hear his voice at the very end. Oh, do you hear his voice at the very yeah, end? Yeah, when they're talking about how 
when he's talking about how like it wasn't a failure or whatever to like make the soldiers feel better when they're like right. training out. Whereas he said wars are not won by evacuations. Mm-hmm. That he did not consider Dunkirk the kind of success that the movies made it out to be. Uh, but what was amazing to me, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get back from our last break here. All right, so one of the things that I didn't realize until I saw Darkest Hour was that there was a contingent of British soldiers at Calais that Churchill deliberately sacrificed yeah. in order to save everybody at Dunkirk. There were something like 15,000 soldiers, and, did, and they were just left to yeah, die. World War II, not, not a good time. It was not a good time, but it was really fascinating to be on the beaches of Normandy and we arrived at Normandy, and the whole place was just caked in fog. We couldn't see the water. We were standing there up on the cliff, and we were looking out, and it was just... Yes, it was foggy. You were there. You, I, I was there. You can confirm that what I'm t- saying is the yes, truth. Yes, can confirm. So we went in, and we watched this amazing video. I was amazed at how much footage there was of, of the D-Day invasion. Did, did, did that yeah, not startle what, you? That's what I was wondering. I was like, is there just some dude like with a with a camcorder just hopping off the boats on on D Day and onto like Omaha Beach? Like, yeah, that blew my mind that people were actually recording. Like, yeah, it was really amazing. Uh, but there was all this footage, and we walked out after the video. It was nineteen minutes long. We walked out after the video, and we look out at the beach, and the fog had cleared as if by magic. It was the ghost of Winston Churchill. The ghost of Winston Churchill had Thank cleared you, the fog. Thank you, Winnie. You've saved our vacation. Did you just call him Winnie? Yeah. Do, do you think the ghost of Winston we're Churchill? We're close enough. Oh, okay. Well, would you call Harry Styles? That's actually what Winnie the Pooh was based off of. Winston Churchill? Yes. No. <laughs> Don't, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I believed you for a second. Uh, no, so yeah, I don't think Winnie the Pooh was based on Winston Classic Church. comedy. Classic comedy there. But and Christopher Robin um, was Mussolini, I think. I, I, I think that's absolutely yeah. accurate. Well, what was amazing about the beaches is, is that they had brought in, they created a pier, essentially, a breakwater to allow ships to land. This is on D-Day. On D-Day. Yeah. And they the, brought over tons and tons of really, material. It really was like a pretty sobering and amazing day, just... Um, yeah, it was, it was crazy what they did, but it kind of made me annoyed. Cause I was like, oh, so they can create a, a water highway in a day. And yet in Provo, it's taken four <laughs> years to fix 700 East or whatever, not East. I don't know, but well. and I-15 has been un- under construction since the beginning of time. Like, so for you, that's the lesson of D-Day is, is that. that- we spend if you want to construct a highway, you freaking do it. But if you don't, you drag it out forever. That's not the lesson I learned. But Well, it, it was just stunning to see all of these blockades that are still there at the beach. And you can imagine the people storming that beach and landing in these huge ships. And 
and there is a tremendous, there's an amazing spirit to the Normandy cemetery. Mm-hmm. So the Americans have built a cemetery, and you know it was American because there was air conditioning bathrooms. in the museum. And bathrooms. And water. Wide parking spots. Wide parking spots. Man, I, I love America. They actually got Kentucky bluegrass for the cemetery to make it look more American. Yeah. I just thought, oh. It was oh, beautiful there. But it was just gorgeous. And and you get this this... And there's this huge sculpture of what of the spirit of youth. Was that yeah. what it was called? I have never felt like that, though. It was like a naked guy flying into the air. As a youth, I never felt that spirit. Uh, I certainly felt a greater sense of the sacrifice and a greater perspective, I think, on how the world works now. I mean, I look at Donald Trump trying to pull out of NATO he hasn't really tried to pull out, but the disrespecting NATO. Right. And the order that was created in the wake of World War II is still the order in which we live today. Yeah. France's, France's latest government was the one established by Charles de Gaulle after World War II. After, after World, World War, War II. II. Right. And half of the countries in Europe were created from World War II. And right. It's pretty wild. And I mean, this is the world we live in now. And we I, I got a tremendous perspective on that. And, and so the day-to-day politics that seem so petty and so worthless really took a back seat, I think, to the kind of perspective that we got there. And so I, I, I will treasure that experience for the rest of my life. Yeah. So now when I see Donald Trump tweet something just inane and stupid... I could just be like, in the long run, it doesn't matter. In the long run, it doesn't matter. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Well, I want to wind this up with a little bit of housekeeping. So this podcast is going to be the first podcast that has actually been broadcast over the radio on KSL. We're worldwide, baby. We're worldwide. So if this is the first time you're hearing us, go to the KSL Podcast Center and or go to iTunes and subscribe to Dinner Table Politics. You can download any of our past episodes and you can listen to all of our future episodes and you can hear Abby talk about One Direction in all of the future. I think I've mentioned One Direction in the majority of our episodes. I think think you have. Oh, boy. I think you have. But uh, we're we're looking forward to this, and we hope that you will uh, come along with us and listen to Dinner Table Join Politics. Join us on this journey. Join us on this journey. But for Subscribe this week, for more Harry references, Harry Styles references, that is. You know what? I went through an entire podcast without a single Simpsons reference, except for now. So, well, anyway, well, great. Thanks a lot. That's right. I'm Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. And we'll see you next week on Dinner Table Politics. Bye. Bye.